Greetings and welcome to White Run Baptist Church Online. You're joining us for the Upward Call number six, which is about the mindset of humility. I am Eric Newcomer, pastor of White Run Baptist Church and your host as we go through Philippians chapter two, and we learn about this mindset of humility, the mind of Christ himself. And we're going to learn about how that helps us in this upward call of God that Paul talks about in his letter to the Philippians. So as we're learning in this letter to the Philippians, we understand that we are reading a letter written by a prisoner. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. He wrote it to a church that he had founded, he had had much connection with through the years, and as we can read from the text, is greatly concerned about them and encouraging them in their walk of faith. So today we join him in chapter 2, and last time we talked about the fact that the upward call brings believers together to strive side by side for the gospel cause. And one of the important things that's going to make that possible is this mindset of humility. What we'll be learning today is that the humble servants of Jesus Christ glorify God by sacrificially serving the interests of other people. And we're going to see how that plays together and how that works here as we go on. I want to give you a little preview of what we're going to learn today. We're going to learn that this is the mindset of humility and that those that are humble, the humble servants of Christ, are characterized by putting others before themselves, sacrificing themselves, being exalted by God, and ultimately themselves glorifying God. And so we're going to look at the text, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and we'll join there in the scriptures. And we'll read these. Here's what he says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind then among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we pray this day that you'll send your Spirit to us to give us understanding of your Word. For by your Spirit, these things were inspired in Paul to write to this church at Philippi. And by your Spirit, these were recognized as the early church to be part of the new canon, the new standard of your Word, and assembled together for us to enjoy through all these centuries. Lord, we thank you for it. We pray that you'll help us to have this mind of Christ that you speak of here. Help us to understand what it is and help us, Lord, to have the faith to ask for it. For you've promised that those things that we ask for in your name 
we indeed will receive. So we thank you this day in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this mindset of humility, Christ is held up here as the ultimate example in verses 5 through 11 of the truths that are put forth in verses 1 through 4. So the beginning of verse 5 is a way to accomplish verses 1 through 4. In verse 5 he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And by mind he means this attitude, this mindset, if you will, where we've taken a title for today's sermon. This mindset can be summarized by a single word, and that word is humility. And humility is is to, in our actions and in our motivations for what we do, to not consider ourselves first. And it's also, humility is also not to think of ourselves as what is the cause of our accomplishments. Humility is to look to God first and others a close second to Him and putting ourselves somewhere last. In the Bible Exposition Commentary, it's a very interesting quote by Warren Wiersbe in his Bible Exposition Commentary. He says, uh, very simply, humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you have lost it. In other words, true humility is to not think of yourself so much that you don't stop and think, well, gee, I'm not thinking of myself, because that would be thinking of yourself. It's a selflessness that ha- that goes unstated. It's a selflessness that, in being an outgrowth of character and an outgrowth of the work of Christ in us, becomes something of primary nature to us, not even secondary nature, primary nature to us. It reminds me of a, of a game our, our children were playing, and it is a game that maybe some of you have played, and they just call it the game. And the game has only one rule, and the rule is that whenever you think of the game, you have lost the game. And then the game restarts. And so when they're sitting around together, all of a sudden one of them will go, oh, I just lost the game. And all of them together groan, oh, because why? Because that person made them think of the game. And thinking of the game is the one rule that causes you to lose the game. Well, humility is a bit like that. Humility, according to Warren Wiersbe, is the grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. And this really one and the same is the submissive mindset, the idea of submitting yourselves to one another. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul summarizes as he transitions uh, passages there from talking about the unity of the church and how it's built up and everything else to then talking about how we live it out in personal relationships. He told us to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And the word submit is a very simple word. It simply means to put under. And so when we submit ourselves, we put ourselves under someone else. In other words, in rank and consideration and importance, we place others above ourselves. And that is what humility does. So submission is a work of humility. And so the submission is closely tied to this. So if you want to think about that as we go through, as we speak about humility, we're also speaking about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we're talking about what a humble person does. And as we talk about this, what we want to do is uh, 
outlined some of the characteristics based on the example of Jesus Christ that we have seen of what these, the uh, person with this mind, with the humble mindset does. Let's take a look at the scriptures here. In uh, verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So to put very plainly, one of the things that we do, if indeed we are people that are of Christ, and we are people of this mindset, uh, we put others before ourselves. We put others before ourselves. And it looks like this. The verses 3 and 4 together show clearly that we should put others' interests before our own. And then in verse 5 and following, it gives Jesus Christ as the example. Now, to really understand what happens here with Jesus Christ is we have to look at verse 5 and we have to see here that it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus clearly was God. Jesus clearly is God. He is one of the Trinity, one of the three persons of the Godhead. We have one God. He is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is indeed fully God. This is very plain from passages like John chapter 1 as he opens his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with, with God and the Word was God. And a few verses later he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's speaking of Jesus Christ, who indeed is God. Everything uh, that was made was made through him. There wasn't anything made that wasn't made by Jesus Christ. And indeed, elsewhere, it says it was not only made through him, it was made for him. And so these are very important passages that we hold to. Uh, we find in the book of Hebrews that he is the exact representation, exact imprint of God. And so this, these are powerfully important passages that we see. And here in Philippians 2.6, we, or 2.5, it says, or 2.6, he was in the form of God. And so as God, Jesus had no need of anything. He laid aside his godly privileges and came as a man. He took on human flesh. He became also fully human in addition to being fully God. And so Verse 6, where it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, uh, I like to say this as he didn't consider his godly position something he could cling to. I want to show you a, a, uh, another way to look at this here in J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of the Bible. In his paraphrase, he has verses 5 through 8 like this. He says, let your attitude to life be that of Christ Jesus himself. For he, who had always been God by nature, did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage by consenting to be a slave to nature and being born a man. And plainly seen as a human being, he humbled himself by living a life of utter obedience to the point of death. And the death he died was the death of of a common criminal. 
So a powerful passage that not only did he submit himself to live as we do, laying aside those heavenly privileges, he submitted all the way to death, a most humiliating death that he himself did not deserve. And so he set those things aside to come and live a life of perfect righteousness, then pay the price for sins upon the cross so that we could be saved. He is the ultimate example, therefore, of putting others before himself. Even before his advent, his perfection, the perfection of Jesus Christ, deserved worship. His great qualities deserved the highest place of honor in the universe. But he gave that up to come and suffer as no one has suffered. And that's why he more than ever deserves to be in that highest place of honor and is seated, therefore, at the right hand of the Father, being exalted above all things. But it's important that we do some theological, what I call housekeeping here, to keep things straight. It's important to know that he did not lay aside being God. That is, he didn't give up any of his godly attributes to come here and be a man. He did not change from God to man. He just didn't exercise his godly privileges as he was here in human flesh prior to his crucifixion. The miracles that he did were by the Holy Spirit of God, and all his signs and wonders have been done by others except for healing the blind, and that's to fulfill the scriptures in a special way. And perhaps turning water into wine, although others in the Old Testament did do miracles of transmutation or transforming one thing into another. And between the apostles of the New Testament and the prophets of the Old Testament, all the other kinds of miracles that Jesus did were done, whether it was healing or control of nature or multiplying of food or even resurrecting the dead. And if we pay attention to what the New Testament says, we find that this is the power of the Holy Spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ himself from the dead. So he laid aside the godly prerogatives and by the power of the Spirit did his ministry and his teaching and his signs and wonders that proved his identity. And so far from becoming less by coming here and being a man, Jesus actually became more because he didn't just give up anything to, you know, become as a man and come here. He took on human flesh. He took on being fully human in addition to continuing to be fully God. And so he took on all those experiences of humanity. And he still has his resurrection body in heaven. And he will return again in that same resurrection body to reign in that body on a new heaven and new earth forever with his people in their resurrection bodies. This attitude of Jesus to so humble himself and to lay aside these divine prerogatives, as we call them, to come here and dwell among us and live the life of righteousness and present himself as a sacrifice, this is in direct contrast to Satan and mankind. 
In the Old Testament, we see a couple passages that seem to be speaking about Satan. And rather than being this one that would lay aside things, he says, no, 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 I will take the throne. I'll become God. I'll take his place. And we see mankind doing the same thing in the garden where Adam and Eve effectively by eating the fruit say, I'm going to get something without God. I'm going to take something God doesn't want me to have so that I can become more. In Genesis chapter 11, we see mankind living this out as they refuse to obey God to fill the earth and subdue it. Instead, they say, no, we're going to stay right here in the plain of Shinar. We're going to make a city and a tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves. When in fact, God had given them a name for themselves. He had given them vocation. He had given them great blessing in the earth, but instead they decided to take on their own way to do it. This is the exact opposite kind of attitude of Jesus Christ. They were completely putting themselves first in each of those instances, but Jesus Christ came and he put people ahead of himself in what he did. And so in the Bible, what we get is for believers in Jesus Christ, having been born again, having been changed from the old self to the new self, we are encouraged with what I call one another attitudes. That's where Jesus gives us a new commandment, he says, to love one another. And that's where we're told that we're going to, uh, we're going to be a blessing to one another. We're, we to- we're told that true love is to put one another first, outdo one another in showing honors, Paul says in the book of Romans. And he says, let us not pass judgment on one another, but let's decide not to put a stumbling block in front of each other. And he says, um, you know, you yourselves, he said, I'm encouraged about you, the Roman church, that you're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So these one another passages in the New Testament are the kind of things that you can search online. What are all the one another passages? You can see what they say. In the book of Thessalonians, we're told to encourage one another, build one another up. And in the book of Galatians, we're told to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which would be to love one another. So to have the attitude is one thing, this humble attitude of putting others first, but proper attitudes have proper results. And Jesus used that body that he took on to provide a sacrifice for sin. And that brings us to the second attribute that is common uh, among those that they, we also, we see that these humble people, these humble servants of God, they sacrifice themselves. Jesus literally sacrificed himself, but we're called to do much the same. If we take a look at uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, what we see is an encouragement to be a living sacrifice. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, uh, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. And we're told in uh, 1 Peter 2.5, 2, you yourselves, like living stones, being built together as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are indeed encouraged to sacrifice. Uh, This is really unfolded in detail in Romans chapter 6. If you'd like to take a a look at it and and tied up with this is what we'll look at in a moment of denying oneself. In other words, this is a sacrifice of self. Jesus said that those who don't pick up their cross and follow him are not worthy of him. And 
as we saw, we're instead supposed to present ourselves as living sacrifices, not to earn heaven, but as a result of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. He sacrificed himself and his body, likewise individually and corporately, the church sacrifices themselves for the sake of the gospel. This is called self-denial elsewhere, to deny oneself and pick up the cross, is how Jesus put it. It's the opposite of selfishness. The selfish set aside the concerns of others to prefer their own concerns. The humble set aside their own concerns for the concerns of others. The difficulty we have is in recognizing this, to recognize how to do this, what it means to sacrifice ourselves. We look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we look at the great scale of it, the drama of it, that he presented himself literally as a sacrifice and he was put upon the cross and killed. And honestly, there's some part of us that seems to fantasize about the great opportunity to give ourselves in a dramatic way to save someone else. We take that idea and we show it all the time in our literature and our film and things like that, where one person gives themselves to save others in quite a dramatic fashion. And therefore, they are the hero and are appreciated, of course, posthumously for what they did. But our opportunities don't normally come that way. It's not normally most of us will get the opportunity to save someone from certain death by putting ourselves in their place. No, it's more the grind of life. It's the little daily decisions to do small things for others instead of ourselves. To lay aside our entitlements to comfort, to prosper in worldly ways, to even rest sometimes. It's in laying aside those kind of privileges and deciding instead to use that resource or use that time and put ourselves in a place of discomfort to serve the needs of someone else. Sometimes it's something as simple as a phone call or an invitation to dinner or a visit that we might make. In all these little ways, like speaking up and saying something that needs to be said to somebody prayerfully and tactfully, of course, but often very painfully. It's in these little ways that we do this. Listen to a quote uh, that I have here. I'm not sure if I have it on my notes. And if I don't, I'll simply tell it to you. Here's what John Henry Newman says about self-denial. He says, the self-denial which is pleasing to Christ consists in little things. This is plain for opportunity for great self-denials does not come every day. Thus, to take up the cross of Christ is no great action done once for all. It consists in the continual practice of small duties which are distasteful to us. And generally they are something that's distasteful to us. Most of us aren't called to the kind of self-denial that's going to end in prison or execution or the kind that's played out on a mission field in a foreign country or on the debate floor of a great hall or in the halls of a seminary and study. Generally, we're just called to the kind of self-denial that looks like turning off the television and reading to our children or taking the time to ask a coworker or a stranger about themselves. It's sometimes making a meal for a grieving family or visiting them in their grief, giving up me time to prepare maybe a Sunday school lesson, to get out of our comfort zone and 
take the kids and teach them for a while, or giving up a night of the week to host a church Bible study. These are the kinds of things that generally we find are expression of self-sacrifice. Now, one barrier to our way of thinking about this is the age in which we live. We live in a worldly context, and even though we're no longer of the world, we're still very much in the world, and it's hard for us to see this. No matter what we can imagine to do in this world today, there's no doubt that we can find a video or an account or a news story of someone who has done it better or more grand, or with more skill than we have, or more time and resources than we have, that can be very discouraging. Instead, we have to focus on what we can do and do it the best that we can with the resources we have and the time we can give it, where we are. This is where sacrifice begins. This is how we are trained in it, the seemingly little things Jesus has promised that when we are found faithful in the little things, however, the greater things will follow. So let's start in the here and now, a little daily sacrifice to master this attitude and the actions that go with it. So the the humble servant of Christ puts others before themselves and they act that out by serving others and, and sacrificing themselves And then we see that they are indeed exalted by God. Let's go back to the scriptures for a moment and take a look at this. In verses 9 through 11, listen to what it says about Jesus. After Jesus served in the way of this total sacrifice, then he was exalted. It said, therefore, and the therefore connects what comes next with this humbling of Christ, with him giving himself in that death on the cross. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, this is kind of a fascinating word where it says exalted here. Uh, It highly exalted him. And this is a word, huperupsu. (laughs) Huperupsu. And it's really from two words. And the root of this word means to lift up. And that would be the, the uh, hoopsu part of the word. And metaphorically, to exalt somebody or honor them. That's what it means to exalt somebody, is to honor them. to As if you're holding them up to present them to, to others. Uh, maybe we'll imagine, if you will, after a, a great team victory or a great victory of battle on the battlefield that the person that is the MVP or the one who was the great hero of the day is lifted up on the shoulders of the others so that everyone can see them and honor them. This is what the picture of exaltation is. But this word, when it appears here, is not just the word to exalt, but it is prefixed with this prefix huper, which we is we get as super, or the Germans get it as Uber. And no, we're not talking about you know driving little cars around picking people up. We're talking about super. We're talking about an intensifier. In other words, when we put this on the beginning of the word to mean exalted, we use it as highly exalted. And you know what's really interesting about this word that's used here? This is the only time it's used. The plain word for exalted without the prefix used 20 times in the New Testament. Here, this 
huper exaltation is this is the only time it appears when it's speaking about Jesus Jesus being exalted for the service for the sacrifice that he was well after Jesus was dead and buried he was resurrected and after appearing to his disciples and teaching them over a period of about 40 days he ascended to the father and then according to the book of Matthew he was given all authority in heaven and on earth. This is powerfully important. All authority in heaven and on earth. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of ultimate power and authority. And it says it right here in Philippians 2.9, he has been given the name that is above every name. See, when he came, his earthly name was Jesus or Yehoshua, uh, like the Old Testament Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. But now he is called Lord, a name above every name. We see in verse 11, he's going to be called Lord. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, a name above every name. And it's very interesting that this name implies great authority because in the Old Testament, when the what they called the tetragrammaton that's the four letter word that was the name of god and we bring it uh, across as yahweh or jehovah and the jews got to the point where they so reverenced the word they so respected god that they would not pronounce his name and instead when they got to it if they were reading the scriptures aloud in the synagogue or to one another in their living room they would not say his name they would say adonai which is lord well, that word got translated into Greek, kurios, when they translated their Bible into the Greek. And guess what Jesus' disciples called him as they wandered around the countryside and the city of Jerusalem and all the places that they went? They called him Lord. They called him kurios, which was not totally unusual for a great teacher or someone respected to be called Lord. But he's called Lord, and he really is the Lord, Yahweh the I am that I am, the one who kept saying I am, much to the consternation of the leaders in Jerusalem. Indeed, he is that name that is above every name. There's no name in the universe greater than what has been given to him. He indeed is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in verses 10 and 11 here, we see that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it goes on to say, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, why does this need to be said? Is it not enough just to say every knee will bow and every tongue confess? Well, if we think about what this is saying here, where are the people of God? Where are the followers of Jesus Christ? Well, they're only in two of these places. They are either on the earth or they are in heaven. For as Paul said it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul made it very clear that he knew, hey, I'm here right now, but if I'm not here, I'm going to be with the Lord. And yet, what is this under the earth? Well, under the earth would be the place of dead. Sheol, it was called in the Old Testament, but we know believers don't die. So that's only unbelievers that go there. That means that even unbelievers will bow the knee and will confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Only at Judgment Day, it's not going to save them. It's too late at that point. But nevertheless, they will be forced to bow and confess. These are 
powerfully terrifying verses if you're not in Jesus Christ. What it means is that one day, oh, absolutely you will acknowledge him. And then you'll go straight from there to the lake of fire forever. So every man or woman ever created since the beginning of creation will bow and confess. And they will be bowing and confessing either in praise and adoration or great admission of defeat during their sentencing. Jesus is indeed highly exalted by the Father. And this is all done by the Father. Jesus never exalted himself. Notice he's exalted by God, by the Father. Jesus humbled himself and the Father exalted him. And his exaltation will continue and will actually escalate and become greater and greater as he returns, as he rules upon the earth. Uh, His exaltation is greater and greater. But a theme that Paul has is a theme indeed that we follow Jesus Christ. If indeed Jesus was exalted after he humbled himself before God, then won't believers be exalted after they've humbled themselves and served others and served God? Absolutely, they will. And this is fascinating because look what it says here in the Gospels very early on when it speaks of Christ's coming. These are prophecies before he was born. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And Jesus tells his followers, um, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, if we try to make a big deal out of ourselves, that's a clear sign we're not believers in Christ. We're not following Christ. But if we put others ahead of ourselves, in other words, we humble ourselves, we submit, then indeed, that's a sign we're the people of God. This is how he described us in the Sermon on the Mount as kingdom citizens. This is they're poor in spirit. They're meek. They're persecuted by the world. But indeed, They are the ones that get exalted. This is the new heavenly ruling class. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted, Jesus said. He is turning things upside down. You think you're great. You think you're in charge in this world. Chances are you won't be in the next because it requires submission to come into the kingdom of God. It requires humility to enter into the kingdom of God. And indeed, we are his body, the the church. We are of the same being as Jesus Christ, literally his body, literally his life is in us. And we're already seated with him in the heavenly places. By heaven's account, we are already being exalted. And Jesus passed on to us his authority when he gave the Great Commission. If we go back there to Matthew, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The implication is, here's your authority to go do this. I'm commanding you to go do it. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, we have all authority to go and do it. There is no higher authority on planet earth than believers in Jesus Christ doing their mission. And this is so powerfully important that we understand this exalted position. And you say, wait a minute, it doesn't look that way to me. It looks like Christians are sidelined, that Christians are abused, that Christians are ridiculed, that they are persecuted. Yes, indeed, they are. 
but all the more will judgment come upon those who do such things because those are the people of God who were obeying God with all the power and authority in the universe to do so. This is powerfully important. It's through us that all heavenly transactions occur. When Jesus talked about the church, he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And he's talking about binding and loosing of souls, of people being saved. There's nobody saved unless they're saved through the church of Jesus Christ, through their ministry of spreading the word of God, bringing the word of God to people, everyone being saved saved is done so through the church. It's what it means. We have the keys of the kingdom. Cannot enter into the kingdom any other way. How can there be a higher authority but to have that that eternal life is assigned or withheld through the ministry of the church? It's for the people of God that the angels move. It's for the people of God and only the people of God that all things whatsoever happen, happen to work for their good. And ultimately, you can read in Revelation chapter 19, we return with Jesus Christ in the clouds of heaven to rule upon the earth with him. We are indeed exalted, but only if first we are humbled. So there is an exaltation for Jesus. There is an exaltation coming. And now here for believers in Jesus Christ. Now the great part of this is this all serves serves to glorify God. Look what it says here in verse 11, at the end of verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, this exaltation of Christ gives glory to God the Father. This is the very purpose for Jesus' first coming. As he revealed to us when he prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was arrested, he asked for God to glorify. He said, I have glorified you on earth. Here's what he said. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And look what it says here in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, this is Jesus saying, I've glorified you on earth. Now exalt me. Bring me back up there after this and glorify me. The Father and Son glorify one another in that way. And so the Father was glorified by Jesus and by all that he did. And at the time for his crucifixion, he prayed to the Father that he would be glorified. Prior to uh, his crucifixion, in the week leading up to that, he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven said, I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. And witnesses there heard this. In other words, this was Jesus' desire, Father, glorify your name. And indeed, the Father said, I have, and I will again. 
This is about the glory of God. This is what all this comes to. All this humbling and serving and sacrificing and exaltation, this all comes around and comes back to God in the form of glory. This is the destination of believers. This is the purpose of believers. The Father is glorified by believers, therefore. Look what Paul said in the beginning of his letter as he talked about us and he talked about what we would do. He said that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This was prayer for us. To the glory and praise of God. In other words, that our works would result in glory to God, that what we do here would bring something to God, fame to Him, acknowledgement to God for who He is. Because honestly, when God is glorified, then He's known. He draws people to His Son when He is glorified. We glorify God in our submission. We glorify God in the works that we do and in our faith. But importantly is to understand this, that the glory is not our own. It is all glory to God because it is all truly done by God. Read again for your homework, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and you'll see something very interesting there. What we see in those verses is three times that Paul talks about, all through this passage, what God has done for us in salvation, what he has already accomplished for believers and the position he has put us in. And three times he says it's to the praise of his glory, that this was done for the purpose of God being glorified, God being praised. And it's important that we recognize that because it is the opposite of humility. It is the opposite of humility to believe that we have some responsibility for the salvation in which we stand. It is something that God has done and we praise him for it and he gets the glory and honor. And that's why Paul says it's done this way so that no one can boast so that all the glory goes to God. And so it's important for us to recognize that. And that is humbling when we realize that, that we're not here in salvation in Jesus Christ because of some great quality we had in and of ourselves without God. We're not here because of some great act we did. We're not here because of some habits we have or a decision we made or some insight we had of ourselves here because of the work of God. And that is humbling. And that should inspire us in gratitude to humble ourselves and serve him and love him with all that we have. And indeed, that is the sign of someone who is truly in Christ. It's someone who willingly humbles themselves. This is how we glorify God. This is We put others ahead of ourselves. We serve them like Christ did, sacrificing himself. This glorifies God, and one day he will indeed exalt us for it. And so these are powerful truths that we see. Now, how do we bring this home? How do we understand this today? I'm going to give you three suggestions here of applications. Number one is this. Number one, we should humble ourselves. Humility is the entry point to the kingdom. The very first thing Jesus and the apostles taught, and even John the Baptist, is they taught repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, they said. And all this repentance 
This comes from humility, because what repentance is, is agreeing with God about our sin situation and determining because God sees what we have done as sin and it has brought his wrath upon us, we turn from it. We reject the sin. We turn the other way. Repentance means to turn around and go the other way. We turn from our sins. And in order to do that, we have to be humble enough to admit that we have sin. And indeed, once admitting we have sin, we have to admit, well, then we ought to stop because that is not something that God wants and it brings the wrath of God upon me. That is true repentance is to turn from sin with the attitude and the intention to not do it again. It doesn't mean we won't sin again, but it means we won't sin lightly. It will always be resisted by us. It will always be hated by us. And it will be diminishing in our lives because of the powerful work of God in us. And so we first turn to him in humility and in repentance. Then what we must do when we've done that and and made that right with God, we have to confess this to a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. And that's another act of humility because then we're basically saying, I told God I have sin. (laughs) And sometimes it's uncomfortable for us to talk about sin with one another, but trust me on this, okay? Please trust me on this. If, If I came to you today and I said, I have sinned, did you already know that? I think you already knew that. I think you already know that I'm not a perfect person. If you've watched two minutes of this, you've understood that. And so it's a humbling thing for us to go and confess these things to one another. Now, you don't have to tell them every dirty little secret you have, but you do have to acknowledge your sin with the church and acknowledge that you've repented before God and that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have to confess indeed that he is your Lord before everyone. Now, whether that means being baptized or joining the church, your local church, however they do that there, humbly admit to them that you need to join with them, that you need to be baptized if necessary, that indeed you have sinned and you believe Jesus Christ paid the price for that in your place and that you ought to follow him all the days of your life. We should begin by humbling ourselves. And then we serve serve in some small way, do something new this very week. Ask somebody what they need. Call somebody and just see how they're doing. Invite somebody over to your house for for tea or coffee or, or, or a bite of food or whatever. Invite someone to church. Just talk with people. Take an interest. Find out what their needs are and get involved with their lives. But I'll caution you, do this with the help of another believer so that you can together discern the truth of the situations and minister most effectively because you don't want to be deceived or drawn into temptation, but you want to serve, begin to serve immediately. Find out how you can serve in your local church. Your local church needs you. And you might think you don't have any particular skills. Believe me, if God has called you into the church, he has work for you to do in the church, in the body of Christ. Every analogy in the New Testament, read Ephesians chapter 4. There's a place for you to serve. There's a way for you to serve. God has given you something that you can do. And then finally, follow Jesus. Know that if we follow him in humility and service, we will follow him in exaltation.
and will see the glory of the Father. When we follow Jesus Christ, God blesses us with peace and joy right here and right now. He blesses us with the ultimate satisfaction in knowing Him and seeing and experiencing His power. He gives us front row seats to see Him changing lives around us. And then after this life, and after the blessings of this life, we have a heavenly home free from the presence of sin and full of the presence of God forever and ever. Believe me, you will have no greater assurance this side of seeing Jesus himself than knowing that you're following him in faith when you humbly submit to him and to others and you serve them and you sacrifice yourself and you follow Jesus Christ. You'll receive great blessing and great assurance that indeed you belong to him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we praise your name this day and we thank you that you have ministered so amazingly to your church, that you sent your only son who took on all the, the difficulties and all the ickiness of what it means for us to live here in this place, that he suffered abuse and rejection that we cannot understand because we've never deserved what Jesus Christ deserves. So a little part of us, when we face mistreatment or difficulty or whatever, a little part of us kind of knows we deserve it, but Jesus never deserved it. Lord, help us understand what that rejection must have been like. But he came and he did this for us, and he took the wrath for sin that was reserved for us. Let us then follow likewise. Let us enter into submission to our fellow man, to our fellow believers in Jesus Christ, to minister the gospel truth to them. Show each and every one of us our place in the body of Christ and give us the faith to follow you there, that we indeed might serve and might know what it is to be this humble servant. And Lord, then, when that is done, you can exalt us. Father, we pray for you to be glorified in us. We pray pray for you to be glorified in this message as it goes out to people. We pray for you to be glorified as it's received. We pray for you to be known for who you are, the great server of man, the great Father, Creator, awesome God, who has done everything for his creation. And Lord, this day we praise you for it, and we will praise you forevermore. And when we see you face to face, it'll be all the more sweet. We bless your name this day. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope this has been beneficial to you, and I hope you've learned a thing or two. Uh, Let's take a look at how you can contact us. You can contact us at whitesrun.org. At whitesrun.org, you can learn a little bit more about the church. You can see what kind of things we have. You can find notes to the sermon, which has the cross-references on it linked for you. You can also email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. That's whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. You can email us there, and we will personally respond to that email. You won't be put on any kind of list. You'll simply be ministered to according to your needs. So just tell us what you think. Tell us what you need. And we will prayerfully consider and we will reply to you very quickly with it. God bless you and may God go with you.